0: Of course what we need is a theme song and good morning gary
1: and good evening jonathan and just before you said good morning you said we need a theme song do we need a theme song
0: <laughs> i really <laughs> really think we probably don't
1: i mean we've well, got so many
0: great taglines now to, you know for a whole line of coffee mugs i mean you know sort of you know always mm-hmm. certain often correct is a great one and of course we may be rambling is another one but yes. <clears throat> the may is really not the operative we usually are so
1: How's life in sunny Chicago? It is sunny in Chicago. It was a very warm the last couple of days. I finally realized I could sleep with the windows open and listen to the sirens and muggings outside. Uh, <laughs> so spring is back. It was fun. <laughs> the sweet sound of urban violence in the morning. There That's, can't be anything quite so nice. Whereas, have kids. Yeah. Grandkids who grew up uh, the first few years uh, in in this building in in, in the city and moved to the suburbs, found themselves unable to sleep the first few nights because it was too quiet.
0: Yeah. Well, I can even imagine I'm out in the suburbs here in in sunny Perth. And when you go out into the country, it's actually quite disconcerting at first when when you're really out where it's quiet, quiet. I mean, I remember when I was about 15, I did a lot of photography and my school put on a photography camp. We drove up into the far northwest of Western Australia. Uh, yeah. And we were like, honestly, thou- a thousand kilometers from any habitation at all and camping. And there's nothing. It's like, at night it got dark in that way that it doesn't get dark in the city ever. And um, right. it was like, you could all you could hear was the occasional rustle of something off in the bush a mile away. You know, like, it was very uncanny for a while. And then I guess you just
1: get used to it, so. Cut. One of the things I was, it's, 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 this is uh, completely random, as most of our thoughts are. But um, it's been years since I was that far out in the country where you could where you could see the Milky Way. You could yeah. see, uh, you 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 could actually see meteors as they're flashing through the atmosphere. Every once in a while, I would uh, in, in August we have the near I think it's the Nereids that come around in August, mm-hmm. um, and I would get outside the city and, and and just be astonished at that. And I realized that that's one of the great great uh, motivating icons of science fiction. It's simply a starry sky. Yes. And, uh, and Robert Charles Wilson made brilliant use of that in, uh, in one of his novels. And yet, how many people growing up uh, in most urbanized areas, and I, I don't simply mean large cities, but any urbanized area, anything other than a rural area, have really had the experience of looking at the Milky Way and asking those questions that I remember, I asking, I remember myself asking when I was a kid. I mean, uh, literally seeing the sky at yeah. night when I was a kid was one of the things that started me reading science fiction. I would think not many, uh, particularly not if they live in Los
0: Angeles. But um, I really think it would be unusual because you can't can't see much sky. uh, Even, I mean, Perth's a comparatively small city uh, and we're out in the suburbs, but there's enough light pollution that, I mean, you can see the stars a bit. But I remember, again, that trip, in fact, uh, sleeping on the bed of a dried out river, uh, which is one of the places we were camping. And you're looking up at the stars, and I mean, I've never seen stars like it in my life. They were enormous. Uh, it was so clear. The, the Milky Way was so obvious in a way that it's not in the city because, you know, it was just this bright, bright, glowing band across the sky. I mean, you can completely yes. understand how it influenced people uh, over time. So yeah. And then, of course, there was the unusual um, lineup of stars, at least here in Australia. I don't know if it was where you were, where if you're up early in the morning, you could see Venus, Mars, Jupiter,
1: and Mercury all lined up in a straight line. Oh, that's right. And I think that may—I don't know if that was visible here or not. But I—that never works unless I drive far away from the city. I mean, uh, I can, you know on, on a good night I can see Venus after sunset. Yeah, but, uh, that's about it. And, yeah. But one, one time, one time I took a grandkid to the—we uh, have a very good planetarium here in Chicago, the Adler Planetarium which is a genuine planetarium with the old Zeiss machines, not one of these video projection things. Mm-hmm. You get. And they were absolutely – I said, that's the sky. And they said, no, it's not. They were absolutely convinced that this was some special effect, that this was some science fiction thing I was taking them to, that the sky <laughs> never – of course, I've never seen it.
0: Ah, oh, it's a strange world out there. Let me ask you.
1: Oh, no, let me start. I should have said this up the front. Congratulations, Gary. Well, congratulations, Jonathan. We're going to – uh, be talking about more awards nomination. Um, this one absolutely stunned me because um, um, I think we're talking about the Locus awards. I we recommend. are,
0: we are. I mean, um, and and I, we said before the podcast, and I want to drop it in to sort of give all our listeners a little bit of relief. We're not going to always talk about awards. Uh, I feel like we have been talking about them a lot lately, so perhaps a chance to touch on this and we have to do it next weekend frankly because both the Aurealis awards and the Nebulas are being presented so you know but then we might take a break through to all closer to the Hugo t- Hugos I guess um, because I think it'll be about June or July before the World Fantasy Award nominations come out and th- some of us some of us Gary have already voted for the Hugos have you I have voted for the Hugos good fact, man I
1: very conscientious about that
0: okay. but um, but yes congratulations because I mean what you're t- referring to is that the I was going to say, what anniversary? It's got to be like about the 40th Locus Awards or something. Really? Uh, it's got to be at least that, you know. Uh, in fact, I'm now going to find out while I'm talking to you about it. I think it's about 40 batches of Locus Awards along. Uh, Locus just this last week announced the 2011 Locus Awards finalists. And da- in the best nonfiction category... The Hugo Award nominated, and it's important to add that at this point, Hugo Award nominated Bearings reviews 1997 to 2001 on the ballot.
1: Congratulations! Uh, thank you very much. And one of the things and I said this on my Facebook page: um, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not really interested in second guessing winners on these things, but uh, and nor am I expecting to be a winner on these things. But when you find a number of people that uh, that are friends on the same ballot. That makes it feel really nice. Yeah. And so, but I can congratulate you multiple times because you're, you're uh, under editor. You're, you've got, uh, swords and dark magic and between the collections, let me see the, am I, am I right? The Peter Beagle, Fritz Leiber and the Stan Robinson.
0: Yes. Yes. They're, they're mine. And actually, so I, I, I hope, can I just interrupt for one second quickly? I did look it up Gary and I hope that Liza's listening. The 40th huh? anniversary Locus Awards. This. this
1: is the 40th anniversary. Yeah. Really? Ah! we will, I will have to make sure I get out there and... Uh, uh, and, and
0: yeah. So, yes. Anyway, you're right. Yes, I, I, I've been lucky as well. And there are obviously some, you know, repeat... Nominees across the category that have been up for other awards that we're going to see. I mean, I see that Nora jemison's up on her first novel, and she's up for the Hugo and the Nebula. I see that Cryoburn and Blackout All Clear are both up, similarly nominated books. N- Nettie's Who Fears Death that's up for the Nebulas, also up for the Locust.
1: So it's a, it's a good batch, I have to say. Cool. Well, I mean, this is a this is a, this is a list where I've read a fair number of the things on it, and I'm I'm pretty satisfied. I mean. There are uh, there are lots of uh, fans who are much more emotional than I am. I get who who get outraged by how how could that thing get on a ballot? Um, <laughs> in the case of the Locus Awards or the Hugo Awards, it means a certain number of people liked it, and you have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I must say they're... I will
0: say that Locus voters have it easier than anybody else. In what sense? Well, think about it. If you're going to whack out a Hugo ballot or a Nebula ballot, you're talking what five or six novels. And right. Lo- locust awards voters get
1: twenty. Well, that's true. They get a lot more to choose from. Um, and the locust awards uh, is also. I think people have pointed this out before. You don't have to join a convention to to vote. No, uh, no. I mean, there is the whole
0: issue of whether you know whether you're a subscriber or not a subscriber. But I I don't think that's a major issue. I think you know you you can come along. You can vote. There is one thing, and I'm reluctant to talk about possible changes to the Locus Awards, but this is just a Mm -hmm. sentimental thing. Do you know one thing I would like? I would like there to be a voting stage from here rather than have this be the finalist and the winners are actually already known in sealed envelopes. I'd like to see how a popular vote from here would affect it. Um, And Liza's probably going to kick me in the shins when she sees me now for having said that. And I'm not actually suggesting a change or saying there's anything wrong. I'm just saying, I looked at it.
1: Uh-huh. I think you could say that about almost any awards, that yeah. awards are, to some extent, determined by the procedures by which the awards are determined. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, one of the things I've noticed over the years, for example, looking at the, the Hugos, because the Hugos are peripatetic. Yeah. The Locus Awards are located, you know, really, within the magazine, and the awards given in Seattle. But... I've, I see, it seems to me, substantially different voting patterns when a Worldcon is in Australia or in the U.K. or in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Canada. Uh, and that is probably not a bad thing because the voting patterns ought to change with those. Uh, yes, and, I which, think so. Yeah. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's somewhat healthy. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the Locus Awards is that you're not sure where – I mean, you can find out, and I'm sure Mark Kelly knows, and you might know, yeah. where the – are distributed from, but it's not. It's not as though, for example, uh, when you have, let's say, a World Con in Anaheim, uh,
0: yeah.
1: and a lot of California people are going to be registering for the convention that might that's not right. have registered had it been in Montreal, and that changes the voting pattern. Yes. Yeah. I think that's always I'm sure, true. I'm sure that AussieCon had a lot more Australian votes on the Hugo ballot than it normally does.
0: Yes, and I'm sure that uh, many of those Australians have nominated for, you know, this round of Hugo's as well, because, of course, you have that uh, travelling entitlement that sort of covers several years, where if you're a member, you can vote, or you can nominate at least the following year, and then you have to become a member to vote. So, you know, it, it, it no doubt impacts it that it travels, and it'll probably impact on, I would imagine, when it goes to Brighton, or to, or to the UK, in a couple of years, I mean. Mm-hmm. So that that's going to be interesting to see how that happens. But, I, but I'm looking at the ballot, and I think that I mean, it's settled in my mind now that sort of I'm happy to sort of have an opinion. And I think 2010 was a pretty good year. don't think it was a great year, but I think it was a pretty good year for science
1: fiction and fantasy. Um, I, my sense is any any year is a good year that produces more than three or four books that we're likely to be reading in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, and if you go back and look at old Hugo or Locus Award ballots – uh, there are, you can, you can, identify a good year by the reputations of the books, whether you've read them or not. Yeah. There is some years in which all the finalists, and I'm not talking about looking at the winners. When you look at the nominated books from say 1975 or 1995, yeah. uh, I, there, there are some years where you're thinking, I have no idea what these books are. And there are other years where you're thinking, this is a list full of classics. Yes. Um, uh, and, and what I'm looking at now is a, a list. I mean, where you have things that, um, uh, uh, one of both of our favorite novels for the year, which is in the novel category, is Ian McDonald's The Dervish House. I yes. have no doubt that that's going to be read 10 years from now, partly because yes. of Gods is still being read. Yes. Uh, so he's... Well, actually, it's, it's
0: interesting just for a second, because this is getting around the whole issue of the, 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 the quality of this particular ballot. But if you look at, say, the science fiction novels of this year, which are Surface Detail by Ian Banks, Cryburn by Lois mcmaster Bujold. Zero History by William Gibson, The Dervish House by Ian MacDonald, which is my favorite of the group, and mm-hmm. Blackout All Clear by Connie Willis. And we ask ourselves, will they be read in 10 years' time? Is the Locust Ballot a decent indicator? Let us step back 10 years to mm-hmm. WesterCon in Honolulu, you were probably there, when Cryptonomicon won, a book still read, Darwin's mm-hmm. Radio by Greg Bear. A deepness in the sky by Verna Vinge, a civil campaign by Lars Master Bujold, and Ender mm-hmm. Shadow by Scott Card, were the, the you know the, the ballot, and you sit there and go, well, I got to tell you that Cryptonomicon is going to keep being read. I think Deepness in the Sky will, Civil Campaign is, so I think it's not a bad
1: indicator there. That's a good that's a good point. Uh, I think that, uh, and the other books you mentioned are read. I mean, the, the Scott Card novel is read in a different way from the other books now. Yeah. That, now that yeah. the universe has sort of you know merged with the YA universe. Now let's step um, back ten more years. Let's go back twenty years.
0: This is interesting. Hyperion by by Dan Simmons, one still being read today. Rim Runners mm-hmm. by C.J. Cherry, one. Okay, I'm second. These are just the science fiction titles. I'm not looking at the others. Yeah. Uh, it's forgotten. Basically, it's out of print. Essentially. Grass by Sherry Tepper. I know is in print. I don't know how widely it's read, and it should be read because it's a good book.
1: Yeah, uh,
0: of Tides of Light by Greg Benford and A Fire in the Sun by George Alec Effinger. And I would suggest that probably two out of those five, and it's not a good qualitative assessment because there's some good books there, mm. um, two out of those five are still being read 20 years later, which is not a bad thing. And let's set back 10 more years. Now, what year are we in?
1: 1981?
0: It's, ni- it's 1980 for books published in 1979. Okay. okay. And Titan by John Varley wins. Got to tell you, mm-hmm. The World Goes No, I think.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's still in print, but I don't think so. Gem by Fred Pohl, which may be in print, but is, I think, not a major Fred Pohl book. Not a major Fred Pohl novel, it's not. Pa- Paradise by Arthur Clarke comes in third and it's out there still being read.
1: Clark is in a different category. I mean, yes, yeah.
0: Star Dance by Spider Robinson, Jenny Robinson, and On Wings of Song by Thomas Dish, which I saw being discussed vigorously in the last week. So they've had some kind of a certainly. I would suggest Fountains of Paradise and actually On Wings of Song have had legs over time that we might not
1: have anticipated. So that's good. Um, yeah, I think it's good. I think on, on, and, and again we're talking about different kinds of reputations for different books Uh, on wings of song is one of those books, which is, I I, I love the book. Mm -hmm. I I was stunned by it. I thought it was Tom Dish's masterpiece. And, um, it's in my mind in a category with little big and and novels that at the time don't see, you don't see a lot of fallout from a novel like that within the science fiction community. People are not writing their versions of on wings of song, but it survived as, as essentially as a literary novel. Yeah. And, what happened, in, This is interesting, when you go far enough back, you get into the 70s, what we would now consider, uh, quote, literary science fiction, literary horror, literary yeah. fantasy, uh, might not have seemed to have as much impact as it does now, that uh, that those novels have been more integrated into the general community. Tom, I mean, it, unfortunately, it, it barely had happened before he um, before he died, uh, but Tom Dish is now a, a literary writer. He's now Very one much, of the yeah. writers yeah, yeah. in terms of John Crowley and the... Yeah. Uh, and other writers of that. Sort.
0: Absolutely. And, and just quickly, if we step back to the very first year the Locust Awards were presented, mm-hmm. it was won by some long-forgotten book, uh, Ringworld, by Larry Niven. Oh. Don't know if you've heard of it.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, there's a rumor going around about it. Uh,
0: and then some long-forgotten hack, Silverberg, wrote this book called Tower of Glass. That was the runner-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Year of the Quiet Sun by Wilson Tucker. Uh, num- the fourth place book that year, which would have made a ballot if that had a ballot, was *And Chaos Died* by Joanna Russ. Really? And just to prove that he was a crazy hack, Downward to, the, *Downward to the Earth* by Robert Silverberg came in at fit Five. It's not a bad
1: barometer. This set of awards. Actually, it's not. No. Uh, and I, but I, I do think when you're list- when you're reading that list of names, and and Wilson Tucker was the one that stood out as being. Somebody we now think of a previous generation. Yeah. Uh, that's if not quite his last novel, certainly one of his last novels. And ex- the yeah. S- novel, the Silverberg novels were at the uh, uh, really coming in toward the end of his, maybe toward the middle of his most ambitious period uh, in, in terms of novels. Downward to the Earth is a terrific novel. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so so now you have you get that far back, and when you start talking about uh, novels that have survived. Some novels survive on the strength of the fact that the authors have become legendary authors. Silverberg yeah. is, whether Bob likes it or not, and Bob's probably not listening to this. Bob, you're a legend.
0: <laughs> yes, he is. He absolutely is. I have to say, just looking, to, I mean, in in 1970, uh, the Locust Awards only listed 16 novels all up. Now, when you realize that we nominated 20, it tells you how the field has changed. Yeah. But in terms of books that are, you know, sort of, you know, rem- remembered. Uh, there's one of the Dorsai books is on the list. Robert Heinlein, one of his worst books ever, is on the list at number really? 9. I Will Fear No Evil.
1: Oh, yeah. But I Will oh,
0: Fear Re-Reading That Book.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, Paul Anderson's Tau Zero, uh, a somewhat well-remembered book. And somewhere down around number 15, and I think it would do better today, Nine Princes mm-hmm. in Amber by Roger Zelazny.
1: Really? Well, yeah. okay. here's one of the things also, when you go that far back, there was a clear bias toward... Uh, science fiction over fantasy. Oh, yeah. And that changed over the years, I believe. Yes. Um, um, the, the, other, the other thing, which you mentioned, Tau Zero, yeah. which is one of the great concepts in science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, as Ringworld. I mean, I'm not sure, I've not reread Ringworld in a long time. I remember having enormous fun with it, and I remember reading the the other similar things, like Bob Shaw's Orbitsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, but both that novel and Tau Zero survived for having been terrific ideas, terrific concepts. Um, Yes. And I I would even argue in both of those novels that the concept is what carried the novel. Uh, Yeah. uh, The, uh, the, the, you know, the giant artificial uh, construct, which got the the, the big done object. I think it's Ross Cavney's term. Yes, it is, Uh, yeah. Bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally get Steve Baxter, you know, constructing, (laughs) using galaxies as tinker toys. Exactly, yeah or in Brian Aldous's phrase, galaxies as grains of sand.
0: Yes, which of course, became, didn't that become, no, was that what Delaney was playing off when he finally did The Stars in My
1: Pockets Like Grains of Sand? I think he was playing off the title. Uh, the title yeah. actually was uh, a short story collection. Okay, yeah. So, uh, but, but it could very well be, that. that's one of the things that I, I think is fascinating, is this kind of uh, dialogue between, within the genre, among, among different writers writing different things. And I think that that may be getting lost a little bit um, as, as as the genre, as, as the field, I should say, uh, sort of atomizes into all these subcategories. You still see people wanting to do that, and I'm always sort of secretly pleased when, when let's say, Cory Doctorow does uh, variations on iRobot, or even when, when, when Scalzi decides to do the most improbable reboot yeah. of any science fiction <laughs> stories <laughs> it's a fuzzy.
0: And, hey, getting good reviews. Getting good, getting reviews. good
1: reviews. I will uh, say one
0: thing sure. that surprises me. Look, I gotta, I'm got. i just looking at this. Because I love old stuff and I can't help myself, the thing that surprises me, there's only 14 short stories listed, right? And the, the one at number one is less well-remembered than the one at number 14. What's number one? Okay. The Region Between by Harlan Ellison from Galaxy Magazine.
1: It's number one.
0: That's number one. That was that was the number one story of the year. It won. Mm. Uh, the number fourteen was this novella by, by Fritz Leiber called *Ill Met
1: Lankmar*. Really. Yeah. It it, it it reinforces what I was saying earlier, though. Even though the region between is actually one of Harlan's more fantasy-like stories. Sure, sure. That that *Ill Lankmar* was was you know must have at that time looked like a, a kind of last swan song of an older tradition of fantasy, which everybody thought was on the decline. Now we know it wasn't on the decline at all. No, uh, not at all. It's back. Uh, so, so to some extent, there's a sense of there, there's a real sense of history when you read those things. Because, yeah, Element and Lachmar is probably never been out of print. The region between has never been out of print, simply because I don't think anything of Harlan's uh, short fiction is. <laughs> Oh, I think a lot of it's out of print. But, uh, well, I mean, a lot, a lot of it's out of print, uh, but, but but not stuff he was writing in the 70s and 80s. I think what I like
0: about this this ballot and everything else, uh, and I like it about the 2000, you know, 2011 ballot, is that the great value to me of the Locust Awards isn't that it presents a winner. I mean, everybody says mm-hmm. it's nice to be a nominee, and it is. It's wonderful to be a nominee. And yes, it is actually is sexier and better to be a winner, yes. But... It's what makes the Locus Awards more interesting than any other, I think, is that it does publish the full list over time. And so you can look back and see how things were kind of regarded at the time by a particular population of readers. You can see uh, awareness of writers changing. Uh, books that weren't seen as being classics in their day becoming classics. You know, Books that were being classics, uh, the classics now being acknowledged immediately. I mean, in the anthology cl- collection category, which was joint back then. The number one book was uh, Silverberg's Hall of Science Fiction Hall of Fame, which we would all point to as one of the great anthologies. But the runner-up was yeah. Nine Hundred Grandmothers by R. A. Lafferty, which is one of the great short story collections in the history of the field. Um, so you know, and you, I mean, you, you look at sort of 1971, the very next year. I mean, you want to talk about remembered books? The winner oh. was Lathe of Heaven, not forgotten. The runner-up was oh. Two Your Scattered Bodies Go by Philip by Phil Farmer, not forgotten. Uh, runner-up to that was Time of Changes by Bob Bob Silverberg, uh, Mm -hmm. Zelazny's next Amber Book, Jack of Shadows, and then Dragon Quest by Anne McCaffrey, not forgotten, but right below that, The World Inside by Silverberg, more Lafferty, you got Son of Man by Silverberg, because he wrote a new novel every week back then, um, we were recognizing this stuff around us, and it's held with us. So it, it, it does show you sort of change, you know, changing awareness. I mean, I'm f- quite interested to see that The Forest of Forever by Thomas Burnett Swan made it onto the Locust Awards long list, if you like, which back then wasn't very, very, very long indeed. I mean, right now, I mean, none of these lists are more than 15 uh, books long, but by 1990, they were getting out to 25 and 30 Um but what you can see as well, I mean, I remember doing this because I've been reading about cyberpunk lately, uh, because I've been very, very bad, Gary. I've been so bad. I've not done my work. Anyway. Uh,
1: oh, I want to hear more about how you've been bad. I want I'll
0: i tell you in two oh, seconds. Sorry. But because the, I just want to say the point that I see is if you start looking at the Locus Awards ballot, and the easiest way to do it is to go to the, the Locus website and go to Mark Kelly's Locus in, uh, Index to SF Awards, which has the full thing. Uh, and if you start in the, early, it just has in the early 1980s, and what you see is cyber, the cyberpunk writers don't begin to really hit some kind of success uh, until several years after cyberpunk had kind of peaked. That's when their awareness is really sort of coming. Because you would have thought it would be like 1985, and or 1984, I think it was, and Neuromancer would have won. Um, but funnily enough, you know, uh, it didn't. Actually, where did it come? My goodness, it was okay. nineteen. Was it nineteen eighty-five or nineteen eighty-six? Am I am I completely forgetting things? I'm suddenly. No, th- I'm thinking. I was thinking eighty-one. No, no, it's eighty-four, eighty-five, eighty-six. That so, late? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. All right, all right. You 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 have the database in front of you. Well, it's not even that I've got the da- da- database, I just happen to remember that one, uh, because that was when you know, that was part of the great new um, Ace Science Fiction specials, when um, Terry Carr sort of really sort of grabbed the, the field by the throat and sort of shook a little bit by putting out such a fantastic... Band. Look, here, here it goes, it was 1985 was the awards, 1984 was the year, and I'll tell you that, I mean, you couldn't be in both categories... But Neuromancer didn't win. It came in second in first novel, if that's not if that's not too redundant. And four of the top five, in fact, first novels were a science fiction specials. Interestingly, mm-hmm. Because The Wild Shore won by Stan Robinson. Uh, uh, Green Eyes by Shepard came in at four. And then Bones by Waldrop came in at five. And David Palmer's emergence, a, a man who at that point looked like he was going to go on to great things. Um, yeah. You know, but none of them were. I mean, I, I don't know whether back then because I wasn't involved. Oh, here we go. You could get double listed, and isn't that interesting? Neuromancer came in at number eight. Really? And you can't look at the books above it on the list and say that one of them deserves to be above it. This is the top ten science fiction novels of of 1984 according to the Locus Awards. The no, when- I'm
1: looking. I, I'm I'm doing. I'm I'm playing your game now. It looks to me like. Neuromancer came in second in the first novel category that
0: year. Yes, and eighth in SF novel. Mm-hmm. But what's in okay. front of it? The Integral Trees by Larry Niven, frankly, not a major Larry Niven book. Demon by John Varley, not a major John Varley book. Hichi Rendezvous by Frederick Pohl, not a major Frederick Pohl novel. Stars in My Pockets Like Grains of Sand, a really very, very good Samuel Delaney novel that would have been part of one of the great diptychs of the history of the field if you'd ever written The Splendour and Misery of Bodies and Cities. Right. Chinora's Venture by C.J. Cherry, which is a book that I enjoyed but is not a major book. And then as you drop down to what else is above it, you've got Across the Sea of Suns by Greg Benford, which is uh, actually a a really, really good galactic centre novel, Um, but don't think it's more important than Euromancer. And West of Eden by Harry Harrison, you know, so there's yes. these seven books that were rated. And it, it's not that we didn't love them, love Neuromancer. I think it's just simply that awareness wasn't there, you know. Well, I think, you, think
1: this is one of the things, and you and I have talked about this also being involved in uh, uh, reading stuff on a deadline. Um, yeah, yeah. And stuff, in your case, you have to read things. You have to read all these short stories in order to do a year's best. You just have to get on to the next one. I'm reading... Uh, I've got most of the books I have in my pile now are September books. Yes. Uh, uh but I, I, when I talk to my friends and, 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 and I, I, don't hang around that much with diehard old fashioned science fiction fans who are going to try to read everything. Yeah. But the people who are fairly regular readers of science fiction, they all have piles of books they mean to get to. Yeah. And a reputation to some extent has to build before people get around to it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the thing that was going on with the Ace Special was that it seemed like everything that was coming out for about three or four years in a row was, was, was something you had to read. Yes. And Neuromancer must have seemed odd to people. And I think what happened is over a period of a couple of years, people began to, more and more people began to read it. And it, it built up an audience. It had, it had a dramatic impact, don't get me wrong. It had a very yeah. dramatic impact when it came out. But I think that dramatic impact grew instead of lessened. Yes. I think there are novels that make—I'm trying to think of an example—novels that make an immediate splash in the year they come out, and then nothing really happens with them. Yeah. Um, I I, I think to some um, extent—I'll think of an example. But there are other novels which actually have traction, which actually have uh, the capacity to entice new readers four, five, six years after they're out. Mm -hmm. I would be willing to bet that most of the uh, people—first of all, most of the people who've read Neuromancer— Aren't even old enough to have read it when it came out in nineteen eighty four. Well, yes, yes, I think that's true. I think
0: that's very true. So, I'm going to t- segue here, Gary, because segues are what we do. We're, we're like a cheap scooter tumbling off of, off a cliff.
1: Um, no, no. to our listeners, a segue means we've actually planned something and and we know what we're doing. We're, <sighs> We're confident. Hang on.
0: Hang on. The the, the test of this will be on the other side of the segue, won't it, Gary? Oh, well, okay. (laughs) We'll try. Well, okay. We've looked at the 2011 Locus Award finalists. We haven't congratulated everybody. And I've got to be honest. This is going to sound bad, I think. But one of the reasons we haven't congratulated everybody is because we know them all and it would take the next 30 minutes. So, congratulations, everybody. I
1: want to say congratulations to Amelia since she's one of our good friends who's been on the podcast and she's up for first novel. So that
0: uh, yeah had to do that. Well yes definitely. Congratulations Amelia, who's a dear friend. Do I have to go find the other dear friends
1: now? Well the thing I, I said this before when there are so many people that you really want to win on the ballot, not necessarily oh. the people up against you personally, but you really want all your
0: friends <laughs> to win. Yes I would yes as, as long as we both get to be actually here's the other problem Gary. I shouldn't say this but of course that. They know who the winners are, right? So we know who the winners are, right?
1: Actually, uh, I don't, but I, but you do.
0: I well, actually, in, actually, in fairness, I can actually take a step back. Now that I, I say that, um, I don't actually, and do you know why? Why? Because oh. I saw the running tally when they'd done all of the electronic ballots. Mm. But I think they still had to add some paper ballots, so some of them may have changed. So even if somebody came, I mean, okay, if somebody came to me and asked me, I wouldn't tell them anyway. But what I I probably know most of them. But you know, even so, and and it's a good ballot, good, good, good results. So I think people when they see them announced in Seattle will be very pleased. But anyway, here's my leap. We look at the 2011 finalists. We go. That is quite a good batch of books. Quite happy, yes, very happy. Okay. Well, Gary, it's May. It's the middle of May. You've just said you've got September books beginning to roll in. We're all wondering mm-hmm. how – we're waiting for books like the new Neil Stevenson, uh, Me or whatever it's called, which mm-hmm. is – it sounds like Neil Stevenson has taken Cory Doctorow's and game and made it 900 pages long um, because it's 900 pages long, Gary. It's 900 pages long. Anyway, I'm sure it will be great.
1: Uh, so in Neil Stevenson worlds, we call it a novella. <laughs> But anyway, keep, keep he's, in mind the the, the 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 Baroque trilogy was something on the neighbor the neighborhood of twenty seven hundred pages. Um, yeah.
0: So. Well, yes, but and this is where you, you forced me to admit that I read the first one and then ran screaming because it was too much, right?
1: I have to say I read all of them and had a great time. What I had to realize, uh, which eventually the publishing world realized, is that these were about what six or seven interleave novels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a novel series done as a trilogy, uh, essentially. <laughs> yes. Now, see, to me,
0: the challenge with that is that if I read 2,700 pages of Neil Stevenson, that's a third of the year short fiction that I've got to read, that I don't read. Yeah. One day, I mean, did I have to tell you I did, did my ultimate nerd test since we were sort of segueing? I did. I did the this, this sad net nerd test. I um, got out the Nebula and Hugo ballots for the last... 30 years wow. and I worked out how many of the books that I had read how many of the novels I'd read at the time the ballot came out and well, that's probably, interesting. yeah and probably right up till about 1999 no even 2000, 2001 up to 2001 I typically read five out of the six books on the final ballot prior to um, the ballot coming out. Hmm. I was reading the field very, very, very actively. Um, I kind of feel, in some ways, when it comes to novels, the sort of 1985 through 19 through 2000 is really my core period, you know, in some ways. Because in 2002, I started reading for years bests, and suddenly, from the year when the, I start reading for years bests, I'm down to one in six novels read, <laughs> or hmm. two in six, and I never get to go back. So I end up not reading these books, you know. Uh, so even like this year with with the Locus of Ballot, or, or look at the, ne, the Nebula Ballot a good example, actually. They're going to mm-hmm. announce it next, sun, next Sunday, I think it is next Saturday. And of the six novels that are there, I have read two.
1: I wouldn't feel bad about that. I mean, this is one of the things we had a conversation about uh, in regard to Hugo voting and Locust mm-hmm. voting, where people were saying online that they, they didn't feel qualified to vote because they only read one novel. Yeah. And we were saying, if you like the novel and you think you should vote for it, vote for it. You don't have to – because for one of the things – th- th- this I know we repeat ourselves when we say this. Sure. But I was just looking right now at um, uh, the, the the fantasy ballot for uh, for the Locus Award. Sure. As uh, things like China Abel's Crokin* and Nedia Okorafor's Who Fears Death. And and for the Fuller Memorandum, The Sorcerer's House by Gene Wolfe and Under Heaven by Guy Gabriel K. Yeah, uh, don't, you don't compare those novels essentially? They're not. No, no, they're no. not even remotely the same thing. Though I will say, that, keep, yeah. Keep going, yeah. Uh, you, 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 if, if you've only read one and you like it, you have a, a reason to vote for it. Uh, if you have read two or three of them, uh, you basically choose one. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, uh, it's very interesting to to look at this where you've got a, a setting in, in kind of imaginary Africa and another setting in mm. an imaginary. China. Uh, so you could look at those two things and say, well, which one is the best imaginary continent? Well, I'm that. sorry. Yeah, there's no such thing as imaginary continent fiction. It's not a genre. <laughs> let's start, not, no, a no, let's not
0: start it. Let's not start continent punk,
1: huh? No. But the problem with continent punk, it
0: sounds too much like incontinent punk, doesn't it? Um, are you there? You, okay, let's...
1: <laughs> Are we on the other side of our segue yet? (laughs) Almost. We're going to
0: get there in a second. I'm just going to say that at a glance, I realize I've read 11 of the 20 Locust shortlisted novels, but only two of the uh, Nebula ones. And I kind of feel like I don't get to have an opinion about the Nebula novel category uh, because, you know, it's like I'd thought about doing that we would maybe do a live podcast and we could actually debate the merit of a category before it came out. And then I realized I've not read four of the novels in the Nebula category. I'm not going to get to read them, so. But the segue, holding still, here's the segue. How's the year going, Gary? How is 2011 itself? You've been reading a lot. I've been reading a bit. I've certainly been following uh, reviews. I've read a few novels because I've been very irresponsible about my short fiction reading. What's your feeling on it so far?
1: Um, my, I, I, I'm not having a, a strong feeling about it yet. I mean, I've read some very strong novels. One of the things that it's odd when you're looking at the years. When you say, how's the year going so far, I have to think back to October and November when I was <laughs> yeah. The year, to me, felt like it started out very slowly. It felt like there was not a lot of interesting material. Stuff was being saved for uh, the late spring and summer, yeah. and the stuff that was finally being delivered uh, was very impressive. I mean, uh, Embassy Town is... It's interesting to... Think of that in terms of the last two years, the last couple of years of China Miéville's novel. Yeah, *Embassy Town* is. Let me put it this way: it's not as much fun, but it's a more, much more important novel than Crockham was. Okay. Um, and uh, it's not probably not as um, strictly, rigorously structured as *The City in the City*, but it's more ambitious in some ways. So. So that was very. I was very pleased to see that. I mean, was, what, what, I do you, really, what do
0: you think of the the line by line writing in that book compared to his other books? Some, it's got some of his best prose in it.
1: Yeah, I believe. I think that. Uh,
0: he, he can drift, and this is not a terrible criticism. Because in some of the books, I think it suits it perfectly. But he can drift towards the purple, a little, our China.
1: Well, this is what this is what bothered me in his earlier novels. Uh, it bothered me. Uh, I mean, it, it bothered me up to the point with the Iron Council. I didn't like, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it bothered me a little bit with, uh, with with even Perdido Street Station, which I did like quite a bit. Uh, there, there, there is a tendency toward that. There is a kind of there. There is a kind of British tradition which consists of essentially almost anyone who's ever read Mervyn Peak, um, <laughs> That that you can you can be tempted to do that. The city and the city, it seemed to me, was extremely disciplined and yeah. in, in, in the, in the police procedural way that demanded that kind of discipline. Mm-hmm. Kraken was at times just absolutely florid, but it seemed to me that he was dealing with an absolutely florid topic and it didn't seem inappropriate. No, no. Um, it, 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 so, so, so style, the style depends on the book uh, to me. I mean, I don't I don't, I don't want to see, I mean, let me, let me think of something. I, I don't want to see a Lovecraft story written in the style of Larry Niven. (laughs) No. It just just wouldn't work. I mean, or or, or Hal Clement. You know, all the backstory and the biology and that sort of thing. You just want absolute hysterical, screaming, horror, and lots of colorful adjectives, which when you're 12 years old, you have to look up, and then you go around talking to your friends. I bet you don't know what Sumerian darkness looks like or what I is. So you want Lovecraft to write that way. He's not hes not going to be Lovecraft of the way. Yeah. Um, uh, a more skilled writer, and I'm not going to say less of a genius, I'm going to say a more disciplined and skilled writer, can adapt the style to the book being written. And I think China Miegel has grown in that area substantially sure. since sure. his first three or four novels. Yeah, um, yeah. Town is more, in, 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 in conceptually, it's probably more like an Ursula Le Guin novel than most other science fiction I've seen in the last 10. Okay. Partly that's its preoccupation with language, which is fascinating. But, you know, when he moves into science fiction, he realizes that there's a certain kind of rhetoric, which has been more or less defined, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, more or less, uh, instituted by, by Le Gwen with novels like the dispossessed and with, uh, with Delaney, probably with novels like noble, which had some fireworks in it. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the territory he's moving in. And I think he knows to adapt his language to that. But what, there are some extremely elegant lines in that novel, uh, which I admire greatly. What do you think of the opening of it? Of the what? what? What do you think of the opening of Embassy Town? I don't think it's a good opening. Uh, yeah. I think it's a little difficult to get into. Um, yeah, and it's a little difficult to get into in a way that, um, I, we, a, a way that we might have been better prepared for had we read um, more. Of more Chinese medieval able novels like this. What I'm saying is if I go back to look at the dispossessed, yeah. uh, which might've been a much more difficult novel to get into, had you not read the left hand of darkness. <laughs> uh, in other words, Le Guin and, and Le Guin has done this masterfully. She's, she's trained her readers over time to understand what she's doing when she's writing, let's say an earth sea story, or when she's writing a, a fantasy novel like powers, or when she's writing uh uh, a, a science fiction novel. Uh, I, I think one of the things that China is doing, which is both brilliant and challenging, is that he's not preparing any, in his current novel, is not preparing readers at all for his next novel. He's trying mm-hmm. out different suits, And uh, uh, it, it bothered me a little bit, frankly, at the beginning of Embassy Town, and I thought this is going to be a problem for some readers, but it becomes very gripping and intelligent, supremely intelligent, and even moving by the time it's over. Is it more Le Guin or more Silverberg? Um, no, I would. Say, I, I I think it's more Le Guin in terms okay. of his concerns. Now, in terms of yeah. social and, and linguistic concerns, uh, the world is a more Silverbergian world, maybe in some ways. Yeah, but I think his angle of approach to his material is his, his simple concerns are more like Le Guin's concerns.
0: See, but the only reason I ask that question is because. First of all, I know that China is heavily influenced by Bob. Second of all, um, I happen to have... I mean, I read the prologue, you know, the opening section in the first chapter or two on my Kindle, and then I got distracted by other things and I haven't gone back to it. And there are now like four copies of the book in the house, so I really have to, have to read it before t- too much time passes. Um, but I did have that sort of feeling that it was a somewhat... Was it, let's say more controlled and intellectual beginning to a book than had been the case with uh kraken which um i'd liked a great deal so i was surprised and interested in that you know that that was what had happened
1: um it, it, it's uh, it, it, it's very controlled it's a very intellectual book and and, and that's why i think it is uh, a radical departure from kraken i have good friends who did not like kraken at all oh sure me too yeah uh, because he, he, he was being playful he was doing some lovecraftian and horror things um he's writing a serious novel here which which doesn't really have the kind of hook that is last. Uh, Kroken has a classic horror story hook. Yeah. Uh, the city the city has uh, a, a police procedural murder mystery book. Yeah. This la- launches you into a world, which is very strange. It gets more interesting as it goes along, but it, it raises a problem, which is a problem more and more with contemporary science fiction. I think with some contemporary science fiction, which is how do you begin a novel? Yeah. How do you get readers into this world? Yes. And, uh, the other novel, the other novel, which is, I think, a much more serious problem this way, and I ended up liking it, but it took me a while. Is Greg Egan's Clockwork Rocket? Yeah. Tell uh, me, clock- tell me
0: about this book, because this this sound this sounds from a distance like st- it's a book one of a trilogy, which was unheard of for Egan to be doing,
1: uh, and it's mm-hmm.
0: also um, it sounds like it's steampunk.
1: No, I don't think it's steampunk at all. Uh, I think it's a sort of it, well, here. Here's a problem with things like steampunk. Once you have a concept like steampunk, you know, it's, it's like you've got red paint; you're going to paint everything you see red. Uh, and he's invented a world which is completely an alternate physics. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's, it's uh, steampunk. It seems to me needs to have some historical connection yep. to us. I mean, my understanding of steampunk is that there is some, if not actual historical setting, then there is some kind of uh, mechanical uh, clockwork mainstream kind of thing. I yep. think the term. Clockwork Rocket is misleading because it makes it sound like steampunk. Yeah, well, I guess Um,
0: that's what I meant. I mean, when all we knew was that he was working on a trilogy called Orthogonal, orthogonal, uh, and that he was doing this book called Clockwork Rocket, uh, it sounded steampunk. And then you come along and you read the description of it, and it sounds as much like anything as Verna Vinges' Zones of Thought stuff. Because it's variable time
1: or something, isn't it, Garrett? It's a variable speed of light. I mean, essentially, if you if you conceive of a universe in which the speed of light changes according to the wavelength of the light, so the blue light travels very fast and red light tra- and and light is emitted by uh, vegetation and life forms uh, and and generates energy. Now, he, he's worked out all the physics of it. The thing which is fa- I'm sure is utterly fascinating to Greg Egan because you can see this with his <laughs> earlier novels, because every novel has a has, has a web page accompanying it with, with diagrams yeah. and. And equations and that sort of thing. I think one, uh, th- there are two things going on in this novel. One, which fascinates me, is the idea that probably more than I'm, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here. Probably more than any other science fiction writer I've ever read, he believes in the aesthetics of imaginary science itself. In other words, he's absolutely fascinated by what he can do with this universe when he changes a couple of basic physical laws. Yeah, and. And, and, and that, that construction of that artificial science, of that imaginary science, which uh, – and, and, and being educated in that science, which takes up nearly the first third of the book, mm. is probably way more fascinating to Greg Egan than it is to most of his readers. I think <laughs> but by the, by the time you get to the 40th or 50th uh, – the 14th or 15th diagram, you know, explaining uh, the, the, the world line and the timeline, it, it, it's, it's, it all makes sense. A couple yeah. of the diagrams actually are crucial but he's absolutely fascinated with how this science works. And once he's got that nail, and once you, once you ascend, it, it, it literally feels like a, a novel with an entrance exam in front of it. Once you've gotten to that entrance exam, the novel becomes not what I would call a conventional novel, but one that you can sure you can clearly see where the, um, where the trilogy is going to come from. I'm not giving much away to say that if you reverse, uh, some of the polarities in our own physics, you have a universe in which somebody traveling near the speed of light, instead of uh, you know, aging more slowly than people than the observer on Earth, according to Einsteinian relativity,
0: yeah,
1: ages much more rapidly. So you can the the theory behind the idea is that you can send a spacecraft off at near light speed and generate it becomes a generation starship. Yes, it comes back a few years later, but hundreds, maybe thousands of years have happened on on board the ship. Sure. Once that gets going, it's it's a fine generation starship tale, and you can exactly see why it has to be a trilogy. Well, then, I mean, uh, yeah. The other thing that came out, uh, I mean, it, it's it's clear that the next volume has to take place on, on the spaceship. It has to deal with different characters. We have to go through several different generations. And then at some point, they have to return to Earth. Yeah. So the trilogy structure is implicit there. Yeah. Um, and I usually object to trilogies. But in this case, I can see my only question is this. Uh, he's going to frankly lose a lot of readers in the opening chapters of explaining this alternate physics. Yeah. Well then and, let, oh, go let, ahead.
0: let me ask you the corollary question because I think, I think it's accompanying question but sits with all of this. Do you think it has become a standard approach for Egan in his work to put an entrance exam at the front of it? Because I mean when you mentioned it with Clockwork rocket, what I immediately thought of was glory the, the mm-hmm. novelette that he wrote for me for the New Space Opera. And that's exactly the same thing. It has an exactly. entrance exam at the front of it. Then it becomes a real you know, a real read, if you like. And I could see it in Terranesia. I could possibly even see it in, you know, you know the, the other more recent book, uh, uh, Zendegi, I think. Uh,
1: yeah, I
0: see, I... That same
1: kind you... of thing where you, you have to qu- get qualified to read the rest of the book. Well, when you uh, it's interesting because... Uh way back with glory if i recall uh, charles and i had a conversation about that story mm mm-hmm. and, and i was saying essentially what you're saying that there's there, there, there there's a, an entire series of paragraphs that really have nothing to do with the narrative at the beginning yeah, yeah. and charles said that's what the whole story is about Now charles was a classic hard science fiction reader sure sure charles was probably and, and charles also was trained as an engineer so he was fascinated by the imaginary science yeah the question that this kind of science fiction asks Which is a very important question because we mentioned Ringworld earlier. Well, Ringworld, like Heinlein, like most science fiction, is engineering fiction. It's not really fiction about science. It's fiction about things you can do with science. Yes. Um, What Egan wants to do is see what you can do by altering science. Can you make science into an aesthetic itself by altering its conditions? Yes. I'm, I'm sure that from his point of view, and the one person I know who... Has, who can follow all this stuff is our friend Karen Burnham because yeah. she herself is a trained engineer I think there is a there is some kind of an aesthetic to imaginary science that is absolutely hypnotic but it's not a narrative aesthetic it's not an aesthetic that you need to tell the story yeah. um, and in the case of Glory I'm sure that Egan felt it necessary to establish that as background for his story <clears throat> but I, you know, I, hate, I hate to say it once the story got going it was a good story but it was just a story
0: Well, you see, see, I was going to say, this is is one of the problems with this whole artistic approach, if you like. To me, the Mm. the thrill of glory, right? And I found, Mm. when when I started reading glory, glory was a thrilling story to me, right? And it was because that first entrance exam piece was Mm. so hardcore, hard SF, that you felt like you were mainlining the core chunk of the field what it's about in one little blast like woof exactly. and, and then there's a nice story at the end of it so good that little bit i mean i could almost have published that little bit it was so perfect it's like yes this is how we will go to the stars it won't be in some great big lumbering sublight generations you know ship it's going to be ramming two molecules together to sub you know to, to light speed so that you can broadcast something will get constructed at the other end or something whatever it was in the, in the story that was thrilling what I wonder with Clockwork Rocket, though, and you've read it, I haven't. I've got a PDF of it here. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, is it thrilling enough? Um, I, okay, here's 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 my take on that. And I'm not. I don't want to scare people off of No, no. I really, I really think he's on to something here. I think he could be writing a very good trilogy. Yeah. The beginning of it is a very interesting hook. It's a very alienating hook. You don't know what the role of light is in this world. You don't know why the grandfather is dying because he's. Not getting enough light, and because the local vegetation is producing light in two wavelengths, that's fascinating, and you want to have that answered. And then you get it answered for about a hundred pages of diagrams and equations. And-
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when he gets to that's- equations, you know, sort of, that's when he begins to lose me just a
1: little bit. I was I was talking um, I was talking to Karen uh, again, our friend, the, the, the one. So she she's sort of. You know, if, if Cheryl is the official sort of uh, resource for conventions and awards and, and, and the backstory of science fiction, I guess I guess Karen is our consultant on really, really hard science. She was complaining that the last novel, Incandescence, didn't have enough diagrams in it. And I thought, okay, we're coming, we're coming from different sides of the room here. I have to say from personal experience, I, in, I should have
0: realized this was going to happen. I have a personal experience with Greg that mm-hmm. absolutely demonstrates this um, – Quite clearly. Uh, back in the 90s, I edited a magazine called Eidolon, you might remember. remember. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And Greg wrote a science column for Eidolon for a while. Yeah? A physics column. And my idea had been that once you get to reading Egan's stuff, particularly the short stories, he's a brilliant explainer of popular science. Absolutely. He's Absolutely. stunningly good at it, right? Uh, and I thought to myself, I'll get Greg Egan to write popular science columns for Eidolon, and the world will go wow right mm-hmm. greg go, goes in his mind from what i could tell hmm i have all this complicated stuff i want to put in my novels this is my ex- uh, opportunity to bring everybody else up to speed so he began to write these quite dense columns full oh, of diagrams that would basically skill the readers up to be ready to read i'm sure the works he's been writing for the last 10 years so you can sort of see there was this sort of desire to have this complicated stuff in what he was doing.
1: Well, and you can see it even back. The first novel of his I read was *Permutation City*. Sure. And and I thought that was utterly gripping. It was the best novel of its kind, and it, it explained the notion of what it would be like to be life as information better yeah. than anything I'd read at the better than Vengi, better than you know anything I'd read. Yeah. And. And and yet, uh, he even with that one, I believe had some essays on his website. And I started reading his I started reading his, his essays. And you're right. I mean, he is he is possibly the best explainer of difficult science science concepts since Asimov uh, coming out of our field. But the concepts that he was explaining were more and more and more uh, arcane. Yeah. Yes. And and the the ideas which were very very stimulating in Permutation City began to seem, I think, too simple for him. Um, Maybe. I think he wanted to he, – he, he, he more or less worked out what he wanted to work out with information theory. And now with this series, he's, he's working with the idea of completely alternative physics. Yes. Um, and is that beautiful by itself? I don't know, but it's not necessarily uh, – Something that structures a story. I mean essentially what happens when I, 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 I sound like I'm complaining about the first third of the novel mm-hmm. it's, it's the interesting thing about the novel is that it does cover the arc of a character's life And during the educational arc when she's at university, she is learning. She's brilliant. She's learning things She's yep. finding flaws in existing theories and we're learning with her. Yeah, but what Hugo Gernsback what would drive Hugo Gernsback crazy is we're not learning physics we're learning a physics which Greg Egan has made up for the sake True. Of the story. Yeah. Well,
0: well, I was going to say, one of the differences between China and Greg, because he talked about embassy town, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I know China gets very concerned about plot spoilers coming out of his books. People won't enjoy them as much because they have it all, all sort of uh, foreshadowed for him. And while we're chatting, I went over to um, Egan's website, and there's a page there for orthogonal uh, mm-hmm. and for clockwork uh Ro- rocket. And lo and behold, there are many, many complicated diagrams having to do with Reisman cavity radiation spectrums yes. and electric flux points and all this, right? And there's a warning. Spoiler warning. Many of the pages below contained conceptual spoilers for orthogonal. And he's the only person I can think of who would be worried about conceptual spoilers rather than actual spoilers to do with the story.
1: Not not the only one, because I had a conversation with Ted Chang. He took the a uh, task. For great length about his story, exhalation. And I had, <laughs> I, okay, and I had inter- exhalation, I have, I've had, exhalation, of all the stories I've read in the last five years, I've probably had more interesting conversations about that one than I don't believe.
0: You. I don't believe you. Pelican
1: really? Bar. Pelican Bar. We Pelican never shut Bar. up about Pelican Bar. We never shut up about Pelican okay. Bar in a literary sense. I'm talking about broad ranging okay. conversations we yep. talk about philosophy, physics, and so forth and so on. I had mentioned in my review that uh, the second law of thermo, a version, this is, again, a completely imaginary cosmology. He's invented this whole universe in order to tell the story. And and I'm going to spoil it again. Sorry, Ted. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is based on air pressure. Everything operates according to air pressure. And when the air pressure equalizes throughout this closed universe, uh, you know, Everything will, will freeze in place. Everything will die. It's entropy. It's the second law of thermodynamics. Yeah. And I mentioned this is brilliant. This is a brilliant way of we suddenly realize this is the second law of thermodynamics and so on and so on. And the story still plays out beautifully and very movingly. And it's a Borges story in many ways. Uh, Ted was very upset that you know the reader is supposed to recognize this is the second law of thermodynamics.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I said, Ted, some readers are going to recognize that. But it doesn't spoil the narrative. It spoils what you are surprised. Not more than a couple of weeks before that, I had been teaching a class to high school teachers. Sure. There's a yeah. local research library here called the Newberry Library. And uh, they invited me to do a seminar on science fiction and fantasy for teachers of honors high school students, very bright high school students. And one of the stories I had them read was Exhalation. Mm-hmm. They all loved it. All yeah. loved it. Two-thirds of them didn't pick up on the second blog, the, the, the Newtonian stuff was not yeah. there for them. Yeah. Um, one guy thought this is a great philosophical conundrum. One teacher thought this is like Voorhees, The Library of Babel, which essentially is what it's derived from. Yeah. A uh, couple of them who were science teachers said this is really neat. But by and large, no, it was a conceptual spoiler that for them had no bearing on the story at all. They, <laughs> I told them what it was. They said, oh, that's nice, but I still like the story the way I read it. <laughs> Now, what happens, mm. what happens with and did not happen with Ted, I, I'm sure I did not convince Ted of this, but I tried my mightiest. <laughs> he, I think, believes that a conceptual spoiler is possibly more important than a plot spoiler. Oh, okay. And he may be the only writer alive who worries about that sort of thing. No, there's Greg, but
0: yeah, there's a the pair of them. But then Ted Chang is Greg's great sort of descendant, if you like, though he's not often seen that way, but he really is.
1: The two of them do one thing which I think is fascinating, and it does relate to steampunk in some ways, and in some ways it doesn't. Ted invents imaginary sciences and then plays out the plot according yep. to real scientific principles. Mm-hmm. So that he sets up an alchemy. 72, 72 letters is a classic Ted Schoen yep. story. Yep. There's an alchemical universe in it. There's a Kabbalistic universe in it. It's, it's a Victorian-era story, so it looks like steampunk, but it's not. Uh, it's, it, it, it's a story about what if you... What if you assume these realities in science? What yeah. if you assume that science is real? Then, then he works it out like Heinlein would have. Yeah. If you had told Heinlein that you've got to, you've got to have golems in this story, uh, Heinlein would have probably tried to work out the golems the way Ted Chang does. Sure. Okay. Well, since we, we got to
0: Clockwork Rocket and Embassy Town by talking about how the year is going— I want to talk about a couple other things because we're going to mm-hmm. get to the point where we need to wind up because we talk at great length, Gary. Um, what did you think of Dancing with Bears? Okay. You know, this is um, Michael Swanwick's new book. It's just out. It's the Dar- Darger and Surplus novel that apparently we've been waiting for for a long time. I mean, I've read the Dagger and Surplus stories and enjoyed them a great deal. And I did get partway through the novel and again got distracted. And I do want to go back to it because I really was enjoying what I read. And it did resolve my initial concern about it, pretty much. So what I want to ask you is, mm. what's your feeling about Dancing with Bears? How does it stand up as a Michael Swanwick novel, as a 2011 novel, all that kind of stuff?
1: I think it's a major novel. I mean, there are Swanwick novels that I have uh, liked better than others. Yeah. Um, and uh, I've always liked the darker and surplus stories. I think one of the things that, that's going, that people should be warned about this, and this is not a plot spoiler, but it's it's just something to be ready for. Uh, Darger and Surplus are, it seems to me, clearly descendants of Fofford and the Grey Mouse. Sure, sure. And sure. Uh, there is this banter between them, which is extremely funny and extremely charming in the stories. And the stories always turn on some clever idea. Mm-hmm. Most of the novel, they're separated. They have their own separate adventures. And at first I thought, wait a minute, these guys are funny. I want to hear them talk to each other. I want yeah, to hear the yeah. wisecracks. Um, he introduces a series of new characters. He has an underground version of Moscow, which he claims is completely imaginary. Um, and it turns out to be a more, much much more complex novel than you would think, because you would think that when somebody is doing something like this, he would just carry the banter on and on and on and on, yeah. like Daniel Hammett did with his Thin Men novels, like Robert Parker did with his Spencer novels. I think he's more ambitious than that. I mean, he writes a novel which really has some... Uh, surprising substance to it. Yeah. it has the same kinds of surprises that you get from uh, uh, from his uh, you know, Dragons of Babylon, uh, Dragons of Babylon. Yeah. Dragon of uh, but but it's, it's 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 a very I think tightly constructed novel, and at the end it it, it rewards you in various ways. It's, in other words, I think it's a very good novel. I don't think it's what people would have expected out of Dargrave and Surplus, but this is one of the things that I sometimes do in the review column. Yeah, is chide the reader. You should have You should have expected more from Michael Swan well, because he's, going to, he's I, going to give you more than you were expecting. I was thinking,
0: uh, the, the thing that disappointed me about the idea of a darker and surplus novel was that I do expect more of him than the obvious. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't look at the way that, say, Bones of the Earth, the dinosaur novel, relates right. to all of the dinosaur stories he did at the time. Uh, and not see that he's trying to do something more interesting than just simply expand on the stories he'd done. Nor can you go back to, uh, say, The Iron Dragon's Daughter and link it up to to, bon- to um, the dragon novel he did later, Dragon's, Dragon's yeah, Babel, is- and, and see it as being in any way a, a simple follow-on. He's a much more, as you say, ambitious book. I'll tell you what worried me about this book when I was reading it, though, Gary.
1: Uh-huh.
0: It starts off as a fairly sexist piece of work. I think he, he addresses that. I think he uh, does too. And it's important, I think, to say that because it was – I mean, given that we live in the shadow of our fairy godmothers and all that kind of thing uh, – that's not even fair. That's probably too harsh. But anyway, but just because it's on my mind these days, I when I was about a quarter of the way through the book, I was getting distinctly uncomfortable because – all the female characters we saw seemed to be objectified female characters. There wasn't a strong female character. The one does evolve, and it all becomes more complicated. And it seemed to me not a very the sort of thing I would expect from Swanwick as a writer. He's not the kind of writer who gives us badly you know, gendered plots like that. So it had concerned oh, me.
1: It, it, I think it's a legitimate concern. There's a very strong and central female character. In some ways, she's more central to the novel than the uh, than the, the, then, then the Serblis turns out to be. Sure, sure. Uh, but I think what what happens in the early chapters, which is very much a kind of, there's a, almost a kind of Richard Burton feel to these yeah. uh, 12, I forget how many, 712 beautiful, perfect virgins who are trained in the arts of love and you can't touch them and so forth yeah, and yeah. On. It sounds like something out of the Arabian Nights. Um, and and they seem to be uh, completely undifferentiated. I mean, it seems yeah. to be like the Texas version of the Seven Dwarfs. Until they begin assuming they begin assuming certain kinds of power later in the novel. in other words, I, I, I'm not defending the novel against that I think it's very it's going to be very difficult for some people to get into the novel possibly because of that yeah he's not unaware of that yeah and he, he makes I think a very deliberate adre- attempt to not only address it but to undercut what you thought your assumptions were about those figures earlier in the novel yeah how do you think it writes against his other books his other novels because he's done what about eight or nine novels now I guess. He's got about eight or nine novels. Um, I I am very fond of The Dragons of Babel, partly because it wasn't anything like The Iron Dragon's Daughter, and yeah. partly because I think he's defining a new way of mixing genres in that. This is a more disciplined novel than that, probably yeah. a more structured novel than that. Um, it doesn't quite have the degree of playfulness that that one had. Um, but on the other hand, uh, there was a novel of his, which I liked at the time, and... I haven't been able to. His, his novel about Faust,
0: Jack Faust, uh, yeah.
1: Jack Faust. And I, I thought that was very admirable and playful. I don't think it was as strong as some of his other novels. I wasn't as fond of Bones of the Earth as I was of The Dragons of Babel or The Iron Dragon. Sure, Dragons. sure. Yeah. Uh, so where would I put this? I probably would not. Uh, I, I hate to, I hate to make comparisons of novels that aren't even trying to do the same thing. Yeah. But if I, if I were to go back and thinking five or six years from now. And I wanted to reread all of Michael Swanwick, and I hadn't read him, and I was retired from Locus. I'd probably start with the Dragon novels, and this might come right after that.
0: Okay. And uh, and also we wonder whether there's going to be more of this because you get the feeling there could
1: be more uh, darker and Surplus novels. Well, the the thing that's interesting about that is to look at what Fritz Leiber did um, yeah. with the Far and the Green Mouser. and he was able to find new depths into the in, in those characters, new kinds of. Uh, worlds for them to explore, and Ilmet and Lockmar, which we mentioned earlier, which was, if not the last, certainly one of the last, uh, five and the Grey Master mm. stories. Oh no, um, no,
0: no! He oh, read them. He wrote them into the eighties, Gary, with Knight of Knives okay. and Swords and all that kind of thing.
1: Okay, well, it, it was the first one to resurrect Barford after uh, many years. Sure, yeah, 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 I think okay. so. That, that that could be uh, true, but yeah, that, that struck me, that struck me as being a very fresh story that didn't look at all like the stories he'd written in, in you know, thirty years earlier. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Swanwick is somebody who, uh, and, and, and talking to him, you get the same sense. He just does not want to repeat himself. He doesn't yeah. want to do the same thing he's done. He's, the darker and surplus things are a lot of fun, but a darker and surplus novel is not just going to be a long, shaggy dog version of a darker and surplus story, and it's no. not. And that's what I about it.
0: Yeah. Well, we need to sort of, you know, r- r- you know sort of, pop around a little bit, because we are running out of time, but since we've talked about three books this, this of this year, I want to go to two others quickly, uh, and then maybe we'll talk just briefly about a few other things and how we feel about the year, but we were talking, before the podcast began, about Akata Witch, Nnedi Okorafor's book, which hmm. I bought, I have to say, partly because I like Nnedi's work, and partly because Viking have done just the prettiest book for it. It's just such a cool looking book, that I, I wanted to have it and to read it and all that kind of thing. How do you think, as the years going on, it's holding up?
1: Um, well, I think it's holding up fine. I think the problem uh, when you ask a question like that is it's holding up against what? And there's nothing to compare Nettie's work with, really. Um, yeah. This is genuine uh, African-based science fiction. This is <laughs> this is interesting in, in in a way to a lot of people who read Who Fears Death, which is deserved its uh, its, its its nomination. Yeah. Um, but before Who Fears Death she'd been writing young adult fiction, and now she's back to writing young adult fiction. Yeah. Um, so people, uh, I, I'm hoping that a number of people who came to Nettie through the adult novel will look at this and see, um, uh, see the way she's using African mythology in a, yeah. in a very different way here. It's, in some ways, a, a novel that I, I suspect draws a little bit more on personal knowledge. Uh, she uh, mentioned, I think she tweeted this probably, but she mentioned that she showed the title of the novel to her grandmother, to her, Niger- uh, and, and, or, or her aunt, maybe, um, who just laughed at the title because Akata is something that every Nigerian American, the, the term is used by Nigerians for essentially, uh, you know, African Americans who visit Nigeria, especially okay. Nigerian Americans. Uh, so the character who's the narrator, who is the central uh, character of this novel, is somebody who was raised in New York, and she was Uh, the 10 or 11 years old, and then moves back with her family to Nigeria, Um, which is a kind of displacement. I've talked with Nettie about this quite a bit because going back to Nigeria after having been raised essentially as a a, middle-class American teenager uh, was very rewarding to her in some ways and I think very shocking to her in other ways. Her father's funeral was disturbing uh, in in what amounted to the sexism involved in it. so, so she begins with that, but the, she's also drawing on what she knows about fantasy. This is a coming-of-age novel. It's a, you know, it's an education of a wizard novel, which is yeah. something that we're all familiar with now. Completely translated into absolutely authentic African terms, um, and this sort of dual vision that runs throughout the novel is probably uh, probably more more complicated than what she's done in any of her earlier novels. Yeah, yeah, because. Uh, and, and she makes use of that in, in terms of even referring to uh, there's a there's a central book referred to in the novel, uh, which is a book by a white explorer who was in Nigeria in 1910 or something. Mm-hmm. It's a real book. So she's fascinated by the by the gaze of, of Americans of Nigerian descended Americans born in America looking at that of explorers looking at Nigeria and of this sort of secret society of leopard people, which has been uh, Actually, it's been a staple. I don't know if Nettie's even aware of this, but Leopard People has been a staple of pulp fiction and and B-movies for decades now.
0: Oh, yes. Absolutely, going back to Cat People and before. Absolutely, sort of
1: thing. Uh, I used to own a paperback, a sleazy paperback from Avon called Terror of the Leopard Men. (laughs) Uh, It's based on exactly the same mythology she's talking about here. Uh, and, And yet, I think she's able to get inside that mythology in a way that no other writer could. We've talked about sure the number of uh, most of the fiction most of the fantasy and science fiction we have about not only about Africa but about Afghanistan by about the Middle East is by let's face it writers out of an imperialist context yeah yeah uh, I mean, we know about Afghanistan uh, through Kip, Kipling and Talbot Monday and that sort of thing yeah uh, unless you read African literature which most of us don't uh, you don't get this sensibility uh, no You don't get it from Mike Resnick, certainly. Um, No, no,
0: no. Mike is basically pastiching, maybe the wrong word, he's he's casting back to a particular kind of Western fiction from a a particular period. You know, so you can understand that. Well, to
1: some extent, he's he's, he's in the Kipling tradition.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't want to sort of be kicking him in the shins too much for being what he is, but it's not African fiction.
1: It's not African fiction any more than Hemingway's *The Green Hills of Africa* is African. Exactly, fiction. exactly. Which, so, 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 yeah, absolutely. He he does what he does well, and actually, I've enjoyed the Kirin Yaga stories. Yeah. Um, so for what they are.
0: Yeah. So to bop around again, how does *A Carter Witch* then stack up against Nettie's other books?
1: Um, okay. In some ways, the template of the book is a very familiar template: the the education of a wizard. Um, yeah. There are some brutal things in it uh, for a young adult novel. Uh, There's a serial killer who dismembers children, and he's a real serial killer. Uh, And it becomes, I I should say this, for people who want to uh, read it simply as a suspense novel, it becomes very suspenseful. I mean, in terms of its narrative drive, let me think about this. Just in terms of that narrative drive of how are these, you know, uh, I, I don't want to give away too much, but but basically, how are these kids going to go up against this terror yeah. force? It may be the most suspenseful novel that she's written. Yeah, it doesn't have the imaginative, just playfulness of her first two young adult novels, of Zara the Windseeker and. Yeah. Um, but uh, because she was, she invented this thing called the Great Green Jungle, and she could use all the resources of science fiction and all the resources of fantasy and do anything she wanted to. And she was just inventing bizarre creatures left and right. Uh, she did some of that in Who Fears Death, uh, but in a much more restrained and controlled way. Who Fears Death, I think, is still her best novel. Yeah. Uh, in this one, she's she's combining some of the restraint of, and confining herself to a completely African mythology as in Who Fears Death. She's combining that with... Uh, uh, well, no, she's... Okay, let me think about this for a moment. It's not as inventive as the first two novels, but it's more disciplined and scarier, way scarier. Okay. And my sense, and, and, and she wrote a horror story for you, as a matter did, of fact. She did, she did. And, and, and this is what I find interesting, as she begins to realize that she can get away with this kind of thing. Her novels have actually gotten darker. Yeah. And, uh, and she's there's there's much more of a horror novel feel to Okada, which, similar to the one in, uh, in Who Fears Death, than there was in the first two science fiction novels. But you see some of that in um, uh, in the story she wrote for you, in, a couple, in some of her short stories. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's she's moving into a kind of dark fantasy, which is really interesting. And I, I, the, the other, she, she's like Swanwick, and I don't know what she's going to do next. But I think she's being becoming much more comfortable with the African materials, um, and is uh, 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 what, what I'm saying basically is that the Cado Witch is a good companion it's probably in some ways a better companion piece to Who Fears Death than it is uh, uh, to Zara the Windseeker. Okay. okay, fair enough. I
0: now, I have to say there's another book that I have in mind because we're talking about, the, you know, I haven't thrown mm-hmm. in the books that I've particularly read because I've read so so many so, so many fewer than you are, but there's one that we've both read and discussed at great length that I think is worth touching on, not the least because uh, Jonathan McElmont, who ironically, I believe, twi- tweets as the SF diplomat, uh, has discussed it in his, and reviewed it not very positively, and that's a book we both loved in Among Others by Joe Walton, which I think stands as one of the year's best books.
1: I think it does, too. Uh, I can see people objecting to it on various grounds, mm. um, and I can also see, and this is one of the things which is interesting to keep in mind when you're a reviewer, if a book resonates with you in a very personal way, uh, it's sometimes difficult to get the distance you need from that resonance because sure. i recognized i recognized her readings of these books as being very close to my readings of these books like sure as, as, so, so that part of us if you're of a certain generation and started reading science fiction or even read these things uh, when they came out you're thinking this is a con. this is a great conversation with somebody who's read these things and uh who's, who's the same age i was so it's almost like recreating that i could see an argument and i do not know what jonathan's argument was was as to how much you need this to be a fantasy novel at all
0: no that wasn't really it he was talking about oh i don't want to put words in his mouth because i skimmed a damn thing uh he was talking about the psychological affect of the character i believe about the sense you may be dealing with an abused character and not nothing is sort of uh said about the degree of sort of abuse in the book etc etc and you need to go and read rather than respond to my Appalling summary of what he said. You need to go and review read what he said. But he he was quite damning of the novel in many ways. Whereas it was interesting to read Paul Kincaid's review of the book, which liked it a great deal, but felt that everybody was complimenting it for the wrong thing, right? Because a lot of the talk is about how, in fact, um, Walton writes about these books that Mo has read during uh, you know during this period in her life, and how they you know then that particularly resonates. But he but. Kincaid's point was that was really the least interesting thing. It was set dressing for, for fans, I guess. Uh, the most interesting thing was the treatment of magic and the con- building of the characters, that kind of a thing. And I can sort of see his point.
1: I think he's got a good point. I think he absolutely has a good point, and it's very much the same point I was making about how do you get distance from something yeah. that's about things that you love. Yes. Um, in other words, the question, there are two, there are two ways of, of querying that novel. One is, does it need to be a fantasy novel if it's going to be about reading science fiction when you're a teenager? The other is, does it need to have all the stuff about reading science fiction when you're a teenager if it's going to be a fantasy novel? Uh, and I thought it I thought it merged both things very well, but yeah. I was holding judgment out on how somebody who has, let's say, never read any science fiction or fantasy at all is going to react to it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I've read... I,
0: I don't know that either. I, I will say that... The fact that we're talking about it the way we do suggests to me that it was, at least in its own terms, successful.
1: But successful among which readership? That's what I don't know. Well, um, I mean, probably,
0: I, you know, it simplifies. It's probably ridiculous, but probably in front of Joe Walton, the reader. This is the book she wanted, you know. I would think it reads like you I mean, some of it reads autobiographical, you know, and, and so obviously that you know, it's something that she wanted to to do. And I think I I want to reread the book before the years out actually. Just to see how I feel about it in December
1: or January. Well, the thing—the thing that I think really made it work—and I'm going to take a slightly third position from the two positions that, that Paul Kincaid outlined. Uh, it's a—it's um, a school novel. Yeah. Uh, it basically is a school novel. that deals with a lot of the tensions that somebody who feels an outsider in school uh, actually feels, and some of the most effective scenes in really, I think, have nothing to do with magic and they have nothing to do with reading science fiction. There, there are scenes like when she's trying to become well-liked and she, she basically uh, ghost-writes a poem for, for a girl in classes yeah. And, and, yeah. and that poem wins over her poem. That's a wonderful moment. That's a bride's head kind of moment. And the novel is full of very closely realized scenes of what it's like to be in a school environment like that. The father is, the characters are very carefully drawn. Yep. Uh, they're, they're, they sh- they change as the novel goes on. So uh, the boy who looks like he's going to be a dangerous Rue turns out to be her only real friend. Um, so I think you can read the novel completely as a mainstream novel uh, with, without worrying about whether the fantasy works out, or without worrying about whether the illusions work out. And, that, and I think that may be the level where it seduced me more than anything else. I was, I was well aware of the novel when I was reading it. Yeah. But she wants to talk about Zelazny. I like to. I like to talk about Zelazny at that age. Yes. So, yeah. So, but maybe all that out, it's, it's it's no. She's devoted a great deal of attention to um, to the novel simply as a a, a novel, a school novel, a coming of age novel, a family crisis novel. Um, the whole business of her father being supported by the aunts, all that sure. is very novelistic in a very mainstream way and very well done. Yeah. So. To, to wander
0: around in a circle, if we can talk off the cuff, in depth about five different books, very different books, mm-hmm. and feel that they all have
1: significant merit, how do you think the year's going, Gary? Um, I think we have five very, yeah, well, we have five very good books there uh, this year, uh, and there are more than that coming up. There are uh you know it, it's a year where it's it's really hard for me to get a sense on the year until you start looking at the fall books sure well you get nothing yeah. really very interesting in january and february uh you Except get a among others. Book, well among others but among others was a hard book to position yeah yeah i uh, guess so yeah so so it's 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 not a summer beach read no, no.
0: and you're just coming up to those aren't you in july i guess Starting to get some. Actually, I don't know what I'm doing
1: for July. I need, I need to talk to you about <laughs> that. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. <laughs> we'll talk about it. But like I say, the books I'm giving now are, are September books. They're interesting books. There's there's one by uh, there's one coming up. Let me see if this is September because I'm not really sure. Um, it's September, yeah. It's a new novel by Tanana Reeve Do. Yeah. Uh, who we've not seen uh, uh, for some time, but who wrote a couple of really powerful. Um, Supernatural Models.
0: It's a sequel uh, to an earlier book that you reviewed is, for us
1: uh, my, some years ago. My soul, uh, yeah, and this is called My Soul to Take. Um, and so that's a very promising book. We've got the first volume. I don't know if both volumes are coming out, but at least the first volume of uh, the best of uh, Caitlin Kernan is coming out later this year.
0: Yes, uh, now, which you have to review. I want you to review that.
1: I, I, I just hope. Do you know when the second volume is coming out?
0: I think that it's a plan – it's a notional volume rather than a planned volume. This is a a statement of intent. We're doing this one. We're going to call it book one because we believe we will do book two at some time. That's my my suspicion.
1: I hope so. Unlike
0: the the Carol M. Schuller where they're doing the collector stories one and two, and that's it. So, yeah, it's a different thing. So. In addition to which,
1: I have another new collection of Carolyn Schroeder stories.
0: <laughs> I know. The thing with with, with Caitlin Kiernan, by the way, I'm going. I want to forbid you to use a particular word in your review, which
1: is horror. That will be very interesting because, <laughs> well, one of the things uh, is I was uh, actually emailing some people at a convention earlier this year, uh, or earlier this, earlier today rather, and we were talking about this book, and I noticed when I looked at the table of contents that the, by far the longest story in it is a science fiction story. Yes, it is. The rise salvages. Yeah. Um, she wrote science fiction earlier, and she's a trained scientist. Oh, yeah. Uh, Paleontologist, yeah. Some very dark, uh, dark fiction, which I think is probably not best described as horror fiction. No. Um, the kind of thing that Peter Straub writes sometimes, when he's not writing supernatural fiction, he's just writing really edgy, uh, kind of disturbing fiction, but not... Yeah anything that somebody who was reading weird tales in 1935 would recognize as horror. Uh, so, so she's one of the more interesting writers that, uh, uh, that we have, who's probably not, uh, been as widely recognized as she should be. Although I really think the red tree should have been more, I I I think I'm sure it was very successful. I just think it should have been recognized as a major novel when it came out. And I don't think it was. Yeah.
0: So do you feel like there's enough to really be looking forward to in the coming months through to the end of the year? I mean, there is a, there is a new Robert Charles Wilson book due out any minute. There's a new Kathleen Ann Goonan book due out any minute. We'll have a new Neil Stevenson before the end of the year, even though it does look a lot like that Cory Doctorow. Uh, we have a new For Vinge book out by the end of the year. Um, um. Uh, though I have to say I didn't read the last one. We have probably 35 or 40 new Catherine Valenti books, it looks like. We had Deathless out a minute ago. We've got The Girl Who surf- Navigated Fairyland and A Ship of Her Own Devices due out. It. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's just out. Uh, she's got the second of her uh, Prester John books due out before Christmas. Oh, yeah. You know, So she's got a lot coming out. There seems to be a lot of stuff. I mean, it, I don't see the book that I'm, I've am i not read yet or seen yet, though it's probably there. The book that I'm going to see is the fantasy of the year. But interestingly enough, whilst there's a lot more fantasy short fiction around right now that I'm noticing. Um, there seems to be some good science fiction novels.
1: It's it's, it's not a bad looking year. I mean, when you mention the names of people, uh, uh, you know, like Neil Stevenson or, or, or Kathy Gunn or Robert Charles Wilson, who are, by now, they're the established names in the field. I mean, established mm-hmm. in various but they're people who we can look forward to. Uh, and, and, and actually, Valenti is, Catherine Valenti is getting into that. She She is. Uh, or if somebody we really recognize and look forward to our stuff, who are the new novelists that are coming up is what I'm wondering. Well, I mean, we, last year we saw, or I guess it was technically last year, or was it earlier this year, we saw Han- Hanu Ryan. Yep,
0: Yep, and he should have his second one out this year.
1: Uh, we saw a novel earlier this year by Johanna Sinisalo, who is an yes. absolutely fascinating yep. writer. We also and last wanted- year
0: had Charles Yu's first novel, and I think we may get his second this year. Yes. Wow. Uh, uh, I just read – I've not read any of the novels of um, Lavi Tidhar. But given what you're saying about some other stuff, I just read about his – he's got a novel coming out from PS Publishing, who, seemed, who are doing some interesting stuff, though it doesn't get the market penetration it deserves. They seem to have a very interesting Ian R. E&R McLeod novel coming. But he's got a mm-hmm. book called Osama coming out, really? uh, which has the tagline – In a world without global terrorism, Joe, a private detective, is hired by a mysterious woman to find a man, the obscure author of pulp fiction novels featuring one Osama bin Laden vigilante. Interesting. And when you realize that, I mean, Tidhar himself, according to this, was in Dar es Salaam during the American embassy bombings in 98, uh, and that he was in the same hotel as Al-Qaeda operatives in Nairobi, And since then, he and his wife have just avoided being both in Kings Cross and in Sinai for their attacks. So he's got this sort of link to all of this, and is uh, bringing a different perspective to it to to his fiction. So that has the potential, I think, to be a really interesting book. You know, I mean, as always, you know, know, mileage varies, and you don't know until you actually read the book. But it sounds like it could be really interesting.
1: You know, well, one of the things that I yeah, and uh, actually, I do have a lobby Titter novel which I'm late on. Um, but I, I'm, I'm blanking on the title right now. It's, it's yeah, already yeah. a masterpiece. Yeah,
0: another um, one you mean, yeah. Uh,
1: and that, that, okay, that's somebody who's an interesting writer who's emerging. We're getting, the, the other thing which fascinates me is when you, when you look at, um, uh, mm-hmm. well, we have two Finnish writers now. Uh, it, I mean, you, 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 you look at, uh, you know, writers entering the science fiction field with a completely different perspective. Yes. From very countries. Um, and, uh, that's kind of what I always look out for. Yeah. I think, I guess, I, I guess when you, because I, I do this, I look at the Locust forthcoming books list and I think, okay, I know that Robert, Robert Charles Wilson, I'll read anything. are yeah. sure, Not a problem. But the, the books I really look forward to seeing every year are the ones I've never heard of.
0: Yes. Yeah. I can understand. I've,
1: that. I've of the books that are just completely, uh, there was a, um, one of Nightshade's books, which I don't think got the attention it deserved was a Will McIntyre novel called Soft Apocalypse. Yes. Uh, and very well thought out, uh, very provocative notion of apocalyptic mm-hmm. it's, It may not be the only one to do this, but it certainly uh, resonates with the last few years in the world economy that apocalypse is not going to come with as, uh, uh, as, as Cormac McCarthy has it, a, a, a sheer of light goes across the sky. Sure. And maybe it's an atomic bomb, maybe it's a meteor, And maybe it's a disease, maybe yeah. it's just a flu like in Stephen King. No, he's saying, what if the economy just goes on, (laughs) things just go on getting worse and worse and worse? As as Kurt Vonnegut said in his famous Bennington acceptance speech, ladies, things are going to go on getting worse and worse and never get better again.
0: Sort of like our podcasts. Sort of like our podcasts, exactly. (laughs) Gary, guess what? We've been rambling. We have been rambling. We have... I mean, I've got, I asked questions on Twitter, and we kind of covered one of them, and we never got around mm-hmm. to something, I mean, about being asked whether SF was hurt by different release dates. Maybe we'll get to that. Our A good friend of this podcast, Karen Lord, asked one a really interesting question, which if we'd got it beforehand, we might have dealt with, and maybe we'll try to remember it about... Um, Whether news is stranger than speculative fiction, and do individuals and cultures have differing definitions of fantasy, which sounds really interesting, and so maybe maybe that's something to get in Karen in to talk about. Ah, because she said you mean basically to be more specific, do we as individuals and cultures have different definitions of fantasy, and how does that affect our stories? Karen is the a person to talk about that, so maybe we'll bring her in. But I think Gary. That this fifty-first podcast, which actually, if you were to look on iTunes, it would honestly tell you in the real world is about our sixty-fourth podcast. And really? <laughs> yeah, uh, you're going to hear some clicking while I do this because I want to get the exact number. If you add, um, if you if you go to the iTunes store and you search on Kood Street and you look on the at the old listing, I'm pretty sure it lists about sixty-two or sixty-four different podcast episodes of varying stripes that have come out. Under the um, the Code Street moniker, which is kind of interesting. Uh, where are we? Sixty? Yeah, this sixty-four. So this would be the six, sixty-six. No, sixty-six. So this is the sixty-seventh or the fifty-first, depending on. It's the fifty-first official Code Street podcast, but the sixty-seventh time there's been some rambling on this channel. Oh, so we do carry on and next week we will carry on again except we will carry on again about awards when we all talk about
1: the next ones. I do want to come back to Karen's question and Karen, if you'd like to do this, let us know because we'd love to have you on. You betcha. Uh, there's another question this is a parenthetical question to keep in mind. Yeah. Uh, once uh, at, at at the International Conference on Fantastic, we were having a conversation about supernatural fiction. Mm-hmm. And Cecilia Holland was there who Basically knows more about history than anybody. Yeah. Uh, and we said, when did supernatural fiction, by which we mean fantasy fiction,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: come to be recognized as something other than natural? In other words, if you, it's, it's a, if you're in a natural world in which gods and demons and ghosts and things exist, that's not supernatural fiction. That's no. natural fiction. At yeah. what point did we think of it as supernatural? And of course, Cecilia mentioned some Irish monk in the 12th centuries. <laughs> is, <laughs> but it's but a what trilogy did he write? Yeah, exactly. But it's a similar question to Karen. Do different cultures have different notions of the fantastic, and do different historical periods have different notions of what's fantastic?
0: I think we could do something interesting with that.
1: Oh, we, we will something. not do it now, Gary,
0: because we have no, rambled for an hour and 20 minutes, Gary.
1: We have. Oh, my we God. Have, I'm sorry. Uh, right, right
0: now, the sound that you're not hearing is the, his, the laughter from – uh, Ian Mond and from A- from Tansy and uh, Re- uh, Alex and Elisa and Kirsten about us having uh, rambled on and on again and having criticized them for having such long podcast episodes when this time really it's us again. So on that happy note knowing that we'll talk we need- Nebulas next week knowing that Elisa and I and Marianne are up for Orioles towards next Saturday night. Good luck. Thank you very much. I talk to will, all of you, I, we, I will talk to you next weekend. Talk to you next weekend,
1: absolutely. Thank you. Good Bye. Night.